Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. Here alongside me is Thea Lenarduzzi, guardian of matters culinary and cultural at the TLS. That's the straightest introduction you've ever know, given me. I know, I know, I'm, you know I'm, I'm, I'm mellowing in my old age. Um, festive period, f- Christmas food, you've brought panettone in for the office. I have. I find panettone a kind of ridiculous food. It's like, it's like loft insulation. It's sort of that sort of foamy, you know. Have you ever toasted it or grilled it? Do you know what I have done, which I wanted to share with you, because I tried a bit before I came down and, and, and sort of put it in my mouth, there, there, there. <laughs> you know, it's that sort of, it's dry. You're supposed to use your teeth. That's why I'm going wrong yeah. with food eating generally, actually, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but i tell you what I did with my daughter. We made chocolate panettone and butter pudding. Oh, bread and butter pudding, yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that is good. Because it soaks up the custard mm-hmm. and it becomes I'll very... give you that. Yeah? Yeah. Is I'll that an acceptable that. use? That's not a travesty. One of my favourite things to do with panettone is to grill it. Yeah. Uh, possibly with a bit of booze sort of dribbled on it. Like, okay. Uh, yeah. Butter? Uh, yeah, and a bit of butter. And then, uh, so grill it, really char it, and yeah. then a blob of, a ball of ice cream on it. Oh. That's really nice. Yeah, I find the texture just weird. It just doesn't... It completely changes on toasting it. Ah. It really does. Oh, there we go. Is that one of your favourite Italian Christmas foods? Not really, actually. I'm actually... I'm not really a fan of Christmas food. No, no, I'm I like I like the leftover sandwiches the next day. And actually, if I had to say what my favourite thing... What I, I, the veg, I suppose. Oh. Some sautéed sprouts. Oh, Pretty God. good. Never boil them, obviously. Never do anything with them. Just, um, just Christmas them pudding. We just had stir up Sunday, so. What's stir up Sunday? Well, stir up Sunday is the last Sunday before Advent, and it's so called because in uh, the Book of Common Prayer, we're supposed to be asking the Lord to stir up our wills, to to you know, to, to do to what? Stir up our wills for the season. Oh the God. coming of Christ, I guess. Uh, but actually, everyone just stirs up the ingredients for their Christmas pudding because that's the first day that you're supposed to. We can't start. go into this now, but have I told you about my Christmas dinner at my house? You just eat whatever you the want. Things. Everyone eats what they uh, yeah, want. Yeah. I just think that's a recipe for chaos. Well, and how do you decide what to drink? Well, you just drink whatever you want to drink. I suppose you've got you've got young children, so they're yeah. not they're not on the wine. Quite they're yet. not. But also, I just okay. think that people have what they like. You know, I think it's not. You could everyone can have different drinks, can't they? I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. Food, it's, it's, it's not the spirit of the thing. You're all supposed to settle on something that none of you particularly. Yeah, wants. exactly. And also, do you know what I, I almost refuse to do now? <laughs> I never want to sit at a table for a length of time 
I love sitting oh, at a table for a length it. of time. I just want to eat and do something Arguing else. Arguing. No, oh, it's who perfect. wants that? That, that? You know, you sit there. <laughs> oh, I look back on Christmases in my past and, you know, you're sitting there with a the family and it goes on and on and on. And no, I just want to. <laughs> no. Well, see, the beauty of being an adult is that you get to make those exactly, decisions. Exactly. And we're having pizza or whatever <laughs> for. If we have Hawaiian pizza this year, I don't for want Christmas to dinner, it. you're going to be appalled. It's not, it's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Um, enough of that. Uh, I hope you've noticed and not grumbled about the TLS redesign in print and online. Do check it out. If you're not a subscriber, here's how to become one. If you live in the US or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. You can get five issues for five crisp pounds or dollars. This week, we have looming elections in the US and the UK, especially the latter. But you may be sick of hearing about them. So we thought we'd focus on two political leaders not currently up for election, but who have dominated the last few decades. Norma Clark has read the third volume of Charles Moore's huge biography of Margaret Thatcher and will be in the studio to consider her impact and legacy. And Owen Matthews has spent the last 20 years reporting on Russia and tries to put his finger on why Vladimir Putin, ridiculous and flailing at one level, or maybe not, is still around and may prove to be one of the most successful leaders of our era. Martin Amis once wrote this. Mrs. Thatcher is the only interesting thing about British power politics. And the only interesting thing about Mrs. Thatcher is that she isn't a man. He also said that male enthrallment by her was an example of UK toilet training run amok, which all sounds very droll and very Martin Amis. But one conclusion Norma Clark draws from the third volume of Charles Moore's Thatcher biography is that her gender is still seen by many as the most relevant thing about her. Thatcher's thought was distinctive enough to create an ism, and yet she's often discussed in terms of her character and her relationships with those around her. The biography begins with her victory in the 1987 election, an unprecedented triumph that somehow ended in downfall in just a few years. Why did that happen? And what lessons does the career of Margaret Thatcher provide for us ahead of this forthcoming election? Norma Clark is here with us to discuss. Norma, hello. Hello. Um, It's a thousand page biography 1007 I think what's it like as a read does it rattle along is it a good read um actually Stig it's a 2500 page biography because it's in three volumes and the third volume is a thousand pages plus um it is a good read and it does rattle along it tells an extremely interesting story and it's very well written. It's very well organised, very well composed and elegantly written, I would say. It's nonetheless quite a challenge to read for all sorts of reasons. I mean, when you offered me this book, I was delighted to review it, um, but I had no idea quite how much of my life it would take away from me. Um, And I realised by the end of October that I'd more or less spent the entire month with Mrs Thatcher. And and, Charles Moore. And Charles Moore. And some of my friends were, I think, getting a bit (laughs) tired of hearing this and that about her. Um, But it is. It's an extremely good biography. It's been very well received. Some people have, have said it's stupendous, it's a biography that won't need to be superseded, and I would have to take issue 
with that, but nonetheless, it has it's deeply, deeply impressive as a piece of work. Well, let's get to how it might be superseded. Who, I'm just, who's this target? Who, who reads this? I mean, a thousand page political biography. Yeah, a thousand page political biography. I mean, is this two thousand five hundred? Yeah, 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 sorry, sorry, <laughs> no, I don't understand. Maybe not enough politicians. Is it Tories? I mean, it, will this be read across the aisle, as it were? Will this be anyone who's interested in politics? Is this for is this for fanboys and girls of Thatcher? I don't. I just can't work out who's going to spend I don't a whole know. month so with what Margaret did I, Thatcher. So what did I think when I was offered this book? Yeah. I thought, well, here's a good opportunity to read over a period of history that I lived through, that I have memories of, and to have a chance to reconsider some of it, um, recapture some of it and reconsider some of it. Will Tories read it? I don't know. Do they read political biography? Your guess is as good as mine. You made a point there. I think anyone who comes to a biography of Thatcher will come to it thinking that they, you know, knowing what they're going to say or knowing mm. what they think. Yeah. Did anything change for you? Were you? Did you feel anything surprising? Did you reconsider anything? I came to it with a sense that she was, you know, I'd come up through that generation that felt free to hate and loathe Margaret Thatcher for all the, the, all the you know, for all sorts of right reasons as well as some wrong ones, I think. I think if you're reading... Biography, and I'm also thinking about if you're writing one, because I'm very struck by what the challenge of writing this for, for Charles Moore, and I'd like to talk about that a bit as well in a moment. But I think if you're reading a biography which is not quite the same as reading a history, then it would be very difficult not to have some sort of empathy and fellow feeling for that subject. I think if you didn't, you wouldn't really want to follow the you wouldn't get to the events. end. You wouldn't get to the end. You, you. Why would you? You would have no interest in that person. So, almost by definition, the form invites you in. And did you feel, therefore, you could say confidently, "I felt empathy with Margaret Thatcher"? Uh, yes, I did on certain occasions and in relation to certain sorts of things, as for example, that the sense that Charles Moore creates very well, I think, of her isolation, her essential isolation in a world which is so peopled by men of a particular kind who have a particular way of responding to her. And he actually says in his very good epilogue, she was not understood by them. And I think the sense of of, of uh, an individual in a position of immense power who's also not understood by the people around her fundamentally, that's very touching. You know, that, that there's something about that that you can feel for. And how much is that a gender issue? Because oh, I think it's very much a gender issue. he says the pronoun issue. she is where this all starts. Yes. And it's yes. not only about her gender, it's about the gender of these people because exactly. it's all men exactly. surrounding this one isolated woman yeah and do, do, so. do you think that's a, that is a, you can't hide you know, I'm quoted Martin Amos at the beginning there's this notion that people sometimes sort of dismiss Margaret Thatcher as only interesting because she's a woman well I wouldn't put it like that myself but I do think that when you say that you know their gender is of great significance I would put it that way round yeah. I would say that you and, and it does make a difference if you make that uh, perspective shift and you ask about the men rather than isolating the woman and treating her as a sort of exotic but nonetheless that is 
kind of the problem, and it is kind of the problem that Charles Moore identifies, and which is a very familiar one. You know, that generation of women coming through, having power, are oddities. Um, and so your solution that you're kind of thinking of all the time you're reading is, well, we want more women doing this. We want more of a world in which you know, women are not the oddities, yeah. but in which there's more of a sense of teamwork. And Margaret Thatcher, of course, is not a team worker. No. So it's partly gender, it's partly character. He she, ends by saying it's character. Would she have cared? She probably wouldn't have cared. Or A lot of people ascribe to this notion that she wasn't an interested in in extending the ladder back down yeah, behind her. And this, this great notion that you, you know, we have a Tory mm. prime minister who's female... And as with Theresa May, and it's sometimes heralded as a great breakthrough, but often people say, well, no, nothing yeah. broke through as a result of it. That's right. And, and partly that's not just down to the personality of the individuals, so of course that's going to be relevant. It's about the system through which they've come and the way in which they reach their positions of power. So it's, it's the larger picture that you have to look at if you're going to make the sorts of changes that some of us would certainly like to see yeah. made. And, you know, things have changed, of course. You know, she is of a particular generation, both in terms of the general history um, and in terms of feminist history. How admirable does she come across? Because you, you talk about her workaholic nature... Mm. And I wonder whether that's an admirable trait or not mm. an admirable trait. Mm. You talk about the damage it does to her family. Mm. She's clearly not mm. much of a mother. Mm. Does that mm. matter? Do, do you find yourself finding things to admire there? Her um, obduracy, do you admire that? That she was a stubborn, determined figure? It's tricky, isn't it? I mean, it is really tricky because, you know, in one sense, I do admire her ability to get things done. I think anyone who sort of tries to do things, yeah. you, know, you, you admire uh, the efficient people, but then there is a cost, and the cost is very clear. And that does seem to come from her personality. It's a personality that had no truck with people who didn't think the way that she thought. I mean, she has feelings. She has feelings for certain kinds of people, but she's not going to waste any time with, um, with uh, people of different views. Is Charles Moore's vision of, of Thatcher the vision that Thatcher would have wanted us to have um, of her? I think so, yes. I, yes, I do think so. Because they were very close. So. I mean, he was the official biographer, mm, for one mm. thing. He was the authorised biographer. One of the things that I found really interesting through reading each of these volumes, which, let me track back, he began, he, he signed the contract to, to do this in 1998, um, and he had not published a book at that time. So he had, he was editor of the Telegraph. He was really? editor of the Spectator, yeah. but he'd never done a book. That's amazing. Um, so he signed the contract to be the authorized biographer, and she was still alive, and he was able to uh, uh, to be friends with her. So the, the the short answer to your question is yes. He's an insider. He's a Tory man. But what you feel reading it is that he grows into the job. He grows into, this is 22 years. So he signs a contract in 1998. He publishes the first volume, goes to the press the minute she dies. And that was a requirement was a, she yeah. made, wasn't it? She said, yeah, do not, not publish one of That's right, not to be published in her lifetime. And she wasn't going to read it. Very important. But the moment she died, the first volume was ready, at which point he knew that he would need to write 
not just a second volume as he'd been contracted to do, but also a third volume. So he had the measure of the of the task uh, by 2013, and then 2015, the second volume, 2019, the fourth. So a 22-year span, and you really feel reading it that he has grown into it. He's become um, not just more aware of what he's doing, but he's absorbed the commentary that's come along with it. So each time each volume is published, people are saying things. And my sense in reading the third volume was very strongly that he taken on board all sorts of the, the ways in which other people were thinking about her. So from starting out as you know, a, a youngish acolyte, he somehow more measured by the third volume. Is this more balanced, do you think, the third one? Then? I do, and I think it is very balanced. I, mean, I don't know, I mean, I'm not going to say more or less, but I do feel that it's a very balanced, considered, measured, um, thoughtful is it because it response. has? Is it because it has the downfall in it? I wonder that this is. Well, I think the story itself is. is you know, it's a dying fall. Yeah. Um, uh, that lends itself. And do we learn anything? Because that, that, that's an interesting point about the downfall. It feels like, you know, I'm not especially. I mean, I'm probably no more political than many people. I feel I know about the downfall a bit. Assassination. You know, Jeffrey Howe. It's an assassination. The, yeah, exactly, and the betrayal and. Yeah. Do you learn more? Do you learn more in the sense of, do you learn more about the emotions around it? To me, it's these grey men who suddenly had enough of her. And as you say, she may have won a fourth term. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, No, you don't, I don't think. Um, I don't think you get a very vivid sense of what and why um, these men were doing except that they were scheming except they'd had enough so so in terms of the sort of emotional analysis it remains at quite a superficial level so what I do suppose. you get them from it you get the sort of background chit chat you get the way that um Lawson and Howe for example were meeting with each other and plotting in the months that led up to what he calls, I think he calls it an assassination. Yeah, he does. He calls it an assassination. And you get the commentaries from the senior civil servants who are present at meetings. So Charles Moore was able to talk to uh, people like Richard Wilson, who was the cabinet secretary at the time, and Robin Butler, and they reflect back. He uses memoirs written by Lawson and Howe, Ken Clark, people of that sort. So he puts together the picture with some sense of the way that they thought about it, but he doesn't step back yeah. and analyse you know, why these men did this. He, he's quite content, I think, with, um, with an explanation uh, that is that is about how they were fed up with being hectored. And, I mean, he says that she becomes worse. All those traits that we associate with Margaret Thatcher in her prime, he says they did get worse uh, after 19, 1987. There's a political gravity, isn't it, Fred? I mean, there's only so long anyone, no matter how yeah. charismatic or whatever quality they might have, if you're in power for 10 yeah. years, there's only so much road you've got, I think, probably yeah. before you start. It starts becoming over familiar. Yeah, Although you so. start to think yourself too big to fail. Which is, yes, which is what he problem. says. Which yeah. is what he says. And do you think she did? Yeah, sort of he says she, she thought of herself as invincible. She wasn't taking 
arguments and things from people. She was steamrollering yeah. all the time. So by the time, by that time, it was you know the steamroller is in full force. Yeah. Does Charles Moore? Does he reflect on on the real world effects of of what goes on behind the doors of Number yeah. Ten, or does he stay Very in little. and amongst the fighting? Very little, and that would be my criticism of the biography. But then I I would argue with myself about that too, about whether that's what you expect from biography. Um, but he doesn't. So the your sense that this is a a very small world of elite men, mostly, yeah. who actually do not know anything about the communities that are most affected by yeah. their actions. That comes across very strongly. And that's a legitimate criticism of the Westminster bubble generally, isn't it? That yeah. it's impossible to take it as seriously as they take it themselves. Yeah. They don't take it seriously because of real-world consequences. Yeah. They take it seriously as part of the mini-opera they feel they're playing in. Yeah. Uh, but it is truly West- shocking, actually. When you, when you really sit down and think about yeah. it, it's truly shocking that here they are making these decisions and over there on some you know, council estate are the people who are being affected by it and they have no notion of the lives that these people are living. There's a great observation you made in this review that when the first volume comes out in 2013, Thatcher is a safely historical mm. character. She's, mm. she's part of a Tory past. Mm. Where are we in, in 2013? So we're sort of... Cameron, you know, Cameron is yeah. there. There's coalition. Yeah. There's austerity, which is maybe yeah. a, a parallel. But ultimately, Thatcher feels, feels like yesterday's historical. yesterday's woman. And mm. do you, you, the argument you make is in 2019, we have an election in nine days' time. Mm. She's no longer historical. Mm. No, and and also the sources, the you know, the beginnings of the civil war in the Tory Party are the day that she that she goes. You can trace it back to that, and also you know. The diehards, the leave diehards, look to her, and she is the heroine, um, and it's and it's her um, uh, antagonism towards the EU that they then they they are you know, recapturing and recovering for us now. I'm struck by Boris Johnson spoke at the launch of this, mm. and he criticised the the one newsline that came out. I remember he he said something about the the crusty uh, climate change mm. campaigners. Cause, oh, yeah, the climate uh, change. <laughs> uh, uh, lot. Are we invited? Would you invite us to compare Margaret Thatcher with Boris Johnson? I mean, you might make an argument she has more in common with Jeremy Corbyn. People who are defined by their beliefs, who who convictions, who are, yeah, conviction Conviction politi- politicians, yeah, and that's what mm. she was rightly mm. or wrongly. Mm. People would say that about her in mm. a way that they wouldn't say about Boris Johnson. They probably wouldn't have said about David Cameron. No, indeed. No, that that's right. Um, odd, isn't it? <laughs> and should we be lamenting? I mean, the question: Should we lament for the lack of them? I mean, would the, would this country be in a better place? It's an impossible question, but it's worth maybe airing if the people running it were conviction-based people, or would it? It could even be worse, I suppose. Couldn't it's it? an impossible question, but to put the two together is obviously illuminating um, and you, you then think well what does it make you feel you know do you feel better with someone who's driven by their convictions but they aren't your convictions or do you feel better when you see somebody who clearly doesn't have any convictions and and is leading the country yeah. um, as you say it's an impossible question to answer but we'll she- find out in nine days time <laughs> Should we do some predictions? They don't have a pick. I'm, I'm going to say I'm getting, I'm getting moderately hopeful. I'm saying really? hung, I'm saying hung parliament. I'm saying hung parliament. I feel yeah. I feel hung parliament because 
I think that there's so many very small majorities at play here. Well, the figures show it can't be anything other than a hung parliament if Labour does well. Yeah, but if they don't, I mean, the, the, the big yeah. thing the Times had last week, which yeah. is the, that that um, giant 100,000 poll had them a 68 majority, 68-seat mm. majority for the Tories. But I, that feels unlikely to me, I, I think. But it's dangerous to make predictions, but let's make a minute. So I'm going to say hung parliament. Are you saying hung parliament, Norman? I think, I'm hoping. Uh, well, honestly, I, I'm so thrilled to, to have this, Norman, because I think... It does make you think about the present as much as the past when you read a biography it does. Uh, um, like this and, and read a, a review of it. So thank you so much for, for coming in to talk about it. Well, thank you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. For all the political change the world has seen in the past two decades, Vladimir Putin has been a constant. Investigating the phenomenon of Putin's continuing success in this week's TLS, the longtime Moscow correspondent Owen Matthews emphasises the point. I have spent the past 20 years predicting the beginning of the end of Vladimir Putin's regime, he says, going on to list a great number of events that should have cut the strings, from the sinking of the Kursk submarine in 2000 to the globally, but it turns out superficially, decried invasions of Georgia and later Crimea. Not to mention the poisoning in Britain of ex-Soviet spies, the shooting down of a passenger airline, support for Bashar al-Assad in Syria and the Kremlin's manipulation of foreign elections. And yet, Putin remains. The time has come, says Owen Matthews, for us all to admit that Putin is one of the most successful world leaders of our day. The next step then is to work out how he does it and what he might do next. Owen Matthews is on hand, having read a bunch of recent studies of Putin and Putinism to help us puzzle it all out. Hello, Owen. Hello there. 
One of the books sets out to reveal the code of Putinism. The other titles include Putin's World and the Putin System. Um, to what extent does such coherence really exist? Well, I think it actually doesn't. Um, I mean, we have a consistent pattern of uh, success. We have an amazingly successful leader who's actually managed to overcome enormous challenges and odds and played a very weak hand exceptionally well. And you can see from the enormous box load of books that I received from the TLS to review that um, this is a subject of intense interest to many academic researchers. And many of the books that I've uh, look at in this uh, review um, try to find a system, they try to find a key, some kind of pattern or code as uh, you rightly say one of the books tries to crack the Putin code. Frankly, I don't think there is a pattern. I think the only pattern is just serial, tactical, very often successful opportunism. Does it help to split things into Putin as global leader and uh, Putin as domestic leader. I'm wondering how, how revealing is it to see him, as at least one of the books suggests, um, as being on a quest for the world's respect? Well, I think he is um, on a quest for the world's respect. I think that's a really important part of his domestic success, actually, because clearly, systematically, the you know Putin is portrayed not only as a strong leader domestically, but as a strong leader internationally. And it's a really important sort of central plank in the Kremlin's propaganda message that you know Putin is you know rescuing Russia from the ignominy and humiliation of the 1990s, from the Yeltsin era where Russia suffered so much you know poverty, um, loss of empire, loss of respect, loss of superpower status. In many ways, Russians I think identify much more closely with the collective with the glory of their nation than many other countries. That's a really important part of the, what the Russians call the battle between the refrigerator and the television, because the television is telling you one thing, that you're living in a glorious nation led by an extremely effective leader going from strength to strength. But the reality is that your refrigerator is empty because you can't afford any food. The international glory that Putin seeks and has been consistently seeking in various ways um, is a really important part of the propaganda message. But, but does it, I mean, because at one level he hasn't achieved that globally because he is a ridiculous figure to many globally. I wonder, is, this just, is that just occluded in Russia? People don't really accept that in lots of respects, because although the success that you talk about is very, very real, if you talk about perceptions of Putin, he feels often a ridiculous um, figure. There's the way he's sort of photographed, the way he's discussed, his his reaction to say homosexuality at the Sochi Olympics. There's all sorts of things where, in global terms, he's a he's a figure of fun in the way that Trump is a figure of fun in the way that Kim Jong Un is a figure of fun. Does that ever seep back into Russia, or is that just ignored completely? He is made fun of. That's true, but I don't think that he's a figure of fun in the sense that he's uh, ridiculous and disregarded, yeah. uh, or that his power is underestimated. I mean, I think, um, I mean, if we take the British political discourse, Putin has been blamed for everything from European football hooganism to Brexit. He's become the sort of the go-to arch villain, uh, which of course does him enormous credit. But I mean, rather, rather does does him an enormous sort of amount of free publicity because I think you know he's not personally responsible for Brexit. Um, I think the ridiculousness 
certainly does not attract back to Russia at all. The two items that you mentioned, him riding a horse bare-chested um, and his remarks about homosexuality are play extremely well to his domestic audience. Yeah. And Russians don't find it ridiculous at all that they have a president who's nearly 70 years old that still works out and doesn't drink and rides horses and yeah. wrestles tigers or whatever it is. But Putin to his own people is certainly not a figure of of, uh, of ridicule. I think we think much more of Putin than we really should. And that's, of course, his victory. Well, and indeed, you, you make an interesting point that, in fact, it's sort of it's sort of in our interest to misunderstand him and to see him as a sort of evil genius, a mastermind. I mean, I couldn't resist reaching a rather depressing conclusion that was, <laughs> uh, we think of Putin as being Machiavellian and powerful and being highly organized and highly effective because what's the alternative to that? What's the converse of that view yeah. that Russia is in fact sort of rather disorganized, rather weak, corrupt, bluffing, but those weak, corrupt, bluffing Russians managed to beat us in so many ways at our own game. They won Syria. Yeah. They took Crimea and got away with it. They interfered in the American presidential, presidential election. I mean, if Russia is weak and they're beating us, what does that say about us? Uh, can I offer an, another theory that we've carried in the pages of the TLS, which I'm, I'm struck by, I see what you make of it, this idea that mm. there's such endemic corruption within the Russian high command that Putin is a kind of figurehead. There's a sort of what amounts to organised crime in, in the upper ruling classes and he kind of has to let that go. So a lot of decisions that are done in his name or things that we point to him as running this great operation against the American election or the murder of a, an ex-Soviet spy, all of those things are actually a, an example of his government out of his control. He's just a figure that that, that can't hold it all in because it's a, so corrupt, it's so connected to organised crime. He's not the evil genius, he's just part of a much broader system which is causing all of these ructions around the world. Well, I think I would strongly agree, but uh, let's let's separate that question out into, into, into two strands. I mean, firstly, you're factually right, and uh, Mark Galliotti, one of the books that I've read, is uh, reviews by him. He's he's written extensively on the Russian security services and the uh, uh, the forensics of the hacking attacks in 2015 and 16 in America and the Skripal attempted murder and so on. And I think it's pretty clear just from the sort of the TikTok of it that actually. There's a strong element of private cliques of security service operatives just sort of going off and doing things similar, you know, on their own initiative. I mean, we'll never know precisely, for instance, with the Skripal affair, how high it went. They had a very strong local revenge motive because they, the Russian military intelligence, the GRU, took revenge on a GRU traitor. It's just a little local, what the Russians call the Razborka, a little sort of revenge uh, plot. So, And I think um, that pattern repeats itself many times, is that a lot of the things that, that, that we think are done by, by the Kremlin as a sort of Putin master plan are actually done the initiative of underlings. The hacking, for instance, as you rightly point out, the hacking, uh, election hacking was undertaken and funded by a Putin acolyte called Evgeny Prigozhin, who's uh, known as Putin's chef. 
Um, he has major catering contact, contracts with the Russian army and so on. So it was just this guy who was personally funding the troll factory and the, and the hacking activities. Um, we don't know whether he was ordered to do it or not. I think it's quite plausible that he wasn't really actually ordered and it was not really a part of a Kremlin master plan. It was just something that he did for patriotic reasons. And he thought that he was sort of, you know, with the team and sort of pulling in the right direction. The other, um, the other part of the question is actually more interesting is that, is that, is that you have Putin who presiding of, over a massive corrupt machine. That's true. Putin presides over a massive corrupt regime. And one of the most, the most interesting points that I uh, picked up by uh, a Russian sociologist, a social scientist called Sergei Medvedev, one of the books that I uh, that I review, uh, point, makes a very interesting and counterintuitive point about corruption. Because what he says is that corruption is, for a start, it's not a bug, it's a feature. The entire Russian elite is geared entirely towards systematic thieving. The point is that all of Russian society is corrupt. And the patchy application of the law to whole swathes of Russian society, even from you know, young, you know, from a, you know, parents who bribe a kindergarten teacher to get their kid into a better kindergarten. When society is pervasive, that makes everyone complicit in corruption from a you know, tiny level to a major level. And that gives the authorities enormous power. You know, do you prosecute, do you not prosecute? If it, when, once everyone is guilty of something, then you have a situation where the authorities can spare you or punish you on their whim. So it's uh, the idea of corruption, not just as you know, conventional corruption, people stealing stuff, but also as a tool of political control, I found very chilling and very, uh, very convincing. And this sprawling, slippery, shape-shiftingness of it all sort of suggests that it, it has a lot left to run. It's not really going anywhere. That, that's sort of the point. You would think in a normal political environment, the various disasters that Putin has weathered will have undermined his authority. Most, and, and they keep getting worse. And the main thing that buoyed his authority for the first 15 years of his rule, which was high oil prices, are now you know, on, very much on the back foot. So you would think that by now, finally, after all these years, the internal contradictions would have added up. But no, the biggest contradiction of all is that Putin is... I mean, if not more secure than ever, he's still you know, um, in charge and still and still popular. Um, and this is the question that no, none of the books that I've reviewed and none of the people that I've really spoken to, or uh, has ever really satisfactorily uh, answered. You know, how does this end? The situation following the euphoria and the mass support for Putin and the outpouring of patriotism that followed the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Everyone was expecting that to wear off to an extent. It has worn off a little bit. His Putin's uh, uh, approval ratings are no longer in the in the 90s. They're in the high 80s. They're now in the high 50s, 60s. The system appears to have, you know, just looking at it practically rather than ideologically, um, seems to have reached a sort of pattern of strange stability. And, and you- I would I would point I I I, th- I think there's there's one very simple reason for that, and that is that. Um, in any discussion between a Westerner and a Russian, whatever the actual metrics of it is, they will both be saying their arguments will be based on two diametrically opposite points of view. That is, the Russian, the Westerner will always be arguing how things could be better in Russia, yeah. whereas the Russians will always come at the question from the point of view of how things could be worse. 
and things could be a lot worse. And in fact, both parties will be entirely right. And there's an argument that uh, which I've heard made that if Putin were to disappear, the person who replaces him might be a more belligerent figure rather than a less belligerent figure. Oh, yeah, you can definitely take that to the bank. Oh, my goodness, yes. I absolutely agree. And in fact, one of the things that, that I noted on going to um, Donbass in 2014 is you realize you know, what a revolution in the post-Soviet space looks like. The kind of forces of nationalism, the extreme nationalists that were let loose in that particular part of the world, most of them Russian, not Ukrainian, but Russian uh, ultra-nationalists from Russia who found themselves in charge of various armed groupings. They triggered a very scary wave of uh, ultra-nationalism within Russia. So I, I think that one of the possible futures of Russia is actually uh, the criticism of Russia from the right, from the national of Putin, a big button, from the nationalist right. I think what one thing that we can say with absolute certainty is that there will never be a pro-Western liberal figure in charge of Russia in the foreseeable future. That's very clear that the pro-Western liberals have been utterly, utterly discredited. And we're having this conversation, we might have to leave it here, but we're having this conversation in the shadow of a NATO meeting. Donald Trump is in Britain um, talking about NATO. We've got Jeremy Corbyn, potentially the next prime minister, who knows, who has a view that NATO needs to be pared back rather than built up. But is it impossible, because I've heard this said, and then people say it's scaremongering, that a Russia either under Putin or under someone more belligerent could indeed go further than Crimea, could be looking at, the, at parts of Eastern Europe and making aggressive steps that could precipitate something more serious. The idea of a, another Cold War or even a warmer war than that, because there are, you know, he could put Russian troops into parts of parts of Europe and precipitate a crisis. Is that complete scaremongering or is that is that, like you say, in 10 years we, we look back and, that, and, and so we should have seen it coming? NATO is the, I think, is the one foe that Putin really doesn't want to antagonise or take on directly. I think it's really clear that more or less all of the aggressions or the various military operations that Putin has, has undertaken have all been actually done rather quickly uh, or rather that they've been the decision making process has actually been done over a rather brief period whether it's georgia whether it's the uh, whether it's the crimea whether it's even syria i mean all of these things were actually done somewhat impulsively but they were all have one thing in common they were against very weak opponents and he got away with all three interventions uh, because ultimately nato the west didn't actually uh care to uh, care enough about Georgia, about Ukraine, yeah. about Syria, to actually uh, intervene militarily or actually oppose him um, in, you know, um, in like manner by using force against Putin. I think Putin is, frankly, too smart to take on NATO. He knows that, it's, that, that, that he will lose that fight. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, he's a judo player. The point is that you use an opponent's weaknesses you know, you, you're, you're not suicidal. You don't take on someone who will obviously beat you. Um, the question is whether he needs another short, victorious war to prop up his popularity. But I don't think the short, victorious war aspect was the wellspring of most of his actions. I think that he had various tactical aggressions as he saw it, you know, the Georgians invading a pro-Russian chunk of Georgia, the, the prospect of 
the Western uh, of a Western friendly Ukraine taking over the port of Sebastopol, the imminent threat of a pro-Russian Middle Eastern leader, Bashar Assad, being overthrown by Western friendly forces. You know, all these things are actually tactical threats that he responded to. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that he needed to start these wars to keep himself in power. I think he was just uh, he, he was actually addressing a threat as he saw it. Well, it's a great pleasure. I mean, it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating, troubling in some respects, but fascinating uh, subject. Uh, oh, Matthew, thank you very much indeed. My great pleasure. It's funny to think that, because in my mind, whenever I speak about Putin and think about him, I do think ridiculous. I don't think ridiculous, do not, but then yeah. maybe that's because I was, I've been brought up with politicians being perceived as being ridiculous, yeah. but actually doing one heck of a lot of damage and being very powerful. And that's interesting. I think it's really good that we talked about Thatcher and Putin today mm. because they're both charismatic figures who are hated and sometimes caricatured and maybe even underestimated. Kind of everyone presumes that Thatcher is the worst thing ever. Everyone presumes, or I presume, that Putin is ridiculous. But there's a real world consequence for that. And you know, Thatcher lasted eleven and a half years. Well, and they Putin's become sort of years. synonymous with the country that they yeah. that they led for so long. And as we look at a next election, you know, because we're, we're not we're not done too much election stuff considering how close it is. But, you know, the US election, the UK election, we've got another piece in the paper about the death of economic man. Paul Collier has written about mm. that, which is kind of one of the last shivers of sort of Th- Thatcher, Reagan mm. economics. The idea of, you know, selfish person pursuing their ends is the way to get a healthy, happy ec- economy. And Paul Collier is saying that's died. It feels that we're in a bit of a post era, doesn't it? But. But we are post-Thatcher, but we're not post-Putin. We're not, but you sort of have to wonder how long, because insofar as there is a Putinism, the Putinism that, that you get a picture of here is, is a very reactive. Yeah, that's it's, exactly It's very right. reactive, and there's only so long that you can react to things, surely, before you have to have a vision of, you know, a kind of a roadmap of the thing. Or maybe maybe you can just react and react and react. And maybe that's, maybe that's maybe the key that's to success. Key don't, to try, success. Yeah, don't try and create an empire. As soon as you think you have control, yeah. you don't. And possibly in the sort of bloody reality of when, you know, I'm very taken, this was a TLS piece a couple of years ago, which was effectively saying the Russian government is like an adjunct to organised crime. Mm. So if you're Putin, you're not actually the capo di capi. You know, there are other people... you sort of get the credit for it. Yeah, but there's lots of people who you can't control. So if they say, you know, we're going to go and and off that person, you can't stop them because you're not actually pulling all of the strings. And maybe there's a kind of genius in him surviving. Mm. You know, he's he's managed within that ferment to stay in power. There's a kind of a genius. And maybe that's what you have to do, constantly just fight tactical battles. Mm. Because that keeps you alive another six months, another six months, yeah. and, and that's enough. And in the meantime, he'll just get more and more work done to his face so that he gives less and less away. That's what I'm saying about ridiculousness. <laughs> Look at him. He's a, you know, he, he, he goes topless on a horse. The picture that we have to illustrate this piece is, is I mean, excellent. It's as, worth the price of the paper. Yeah, but but, but that, as Aaron says, he's 70. And this yeah. is from 2019. It's a picture of him doing judo. Yeah. And what? He looks 50, doesn't it's he? quite a lunge. He's got a good lunge on him. Um, we should probably stop talking. That's about all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Owen Matthews and Norma Clark. Get subscribing to the TLS for all sorts of interesting stuff. We do look at the death of Economic Man, The Life of the Last Afghan in Guantanamo by Clive Stafford-Smith, which is just a magnificent piece there, which you commissioned. We're talking about this week in Britain, terrorists being locked up for life. And this is a guy in Guantanamo Bay who, because Trump tweeted, no more people leaving Guantanamo, even though... Yeah, no trial, no charge. No, and no, no prospect of charge. They've yeah. kind of conceded he's not guilty. Yeah. And he's in Guantanamo Bay 
for years and years and years. I mean, I, I, Clive's left me the right. I still find it shocking each time. Mm-hmm. And I don't keep banging on about it, but I really do. Uh, there's also an unloved novel by Henry James, a dispatch from a suicide respite centre. You're not going to get all of this type of variety elsewhere. Next week, Jane Austen and religion. Not together, obviously. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm.